1: Paul says to preach the cross is foolishness. Jesus even portrays the Father as a fool in the eyes of the Pharisees and most of humanity. The foolishness of God, as we'll see today, is far more infinite than the wisdom of man. Man's wisdom versus God's wisdom next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Join us. On behalf of Heritage Reformed Church of San Jose, we welcome you to this edition of Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor, Gary Wagner. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning with verse 10 today, as we take a look at man's wisdom versus the wisdom of God. It's our hope and prayer that today's broadcast provides for you a bit of insight into the foolishness of God and just how wise it really is. With this edition of Abounding Grace,
2: here's Pastor Gary Wagner. Man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. The Apostle Paul is now in this section beginning to deal with some of the problems that the church in Corinth was experiencing. And the problem he deals with first is division, a division over the leadership of the church. Some people preferred Apollos, some people preferred Paul's leadership, Some people liked the preaching of Peter, and some said, I don't like preachers in general. I wish to be led by only Jesus Christ. There was all kinds of confusion and division within the church at Corinth, so Paul begins the heart of his letter with a call to unity. He calls this church to reunite itself in Christ, and the calling is not something superficial. He doesn't say, just forget about your differences, as if differences of opinion aren't important. He doesn't try to call them to some type of superficial unity, nor does he call them to some monolithic unity, as if we cannot ever differ with one another. He isn't saying there can't be any disagreement whatsoever on anything, because as we'll see later on in chapter 12, he talks about the variety in the church of Christ. So, this call to unity, on the one hand, is not a superficial matter, nor is it some kind of monolithic unity where everyone is cloned with a certain outlook. But it is a call to certain, sincere, deep, observable unity that people can see. Be one. Be united. Be the same in basically two areas. Be united in love and in truth. Paul says, you're quarreling among yourselves. There is division evident to others here. You are not treating one another with the respect and dignity that Christians should be showing one another. There is not real Christian love. So Paul writes the whole 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians to teach them how to be united in their love for one another. But Paul, wise biblical teacher that he is, shows them that they cannot be united in love unless there is also unity in the truth. So throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he calls them to unity. Believe the same things. Make sure that every view you hold, make sure that every doctrine you believe, every teaching you express and communicate to teach each other is firmly rooted in the Word of God. Make sure there is unity of love based on a unity in the truth and that you will all believe the same things when it comes to the Bible being the source of our worldview and of the very theological basis on which we erect all of our opinions, all of our assessments, and all of our evaluations in the world. And this unity is possible, brethren. It is not something beyond us. It's possible to be one in love with one another, and it is possible to be one in the truth for two very good reasons. First, because of the unity of the name of Christ, and then because of the unity of the body of Christ. Paul says in verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak all the same thing. The name of God is the revelation of God, the revelation of the character and the will of Jesus Christ in the Holy Scriptures. And it's one. There is nothing contradictory about the Word of God. There is no division. There is no disunity in it. This revelation of Christ, the name of Christ, is of one complete fabric. And because of the unity of the revelation of God, you must manifest a unity in your own lives. And our unity is possible because of the unity we have in the body of Christ. As we have studied in the past, we are all in Christ. We are one before Almighty God. He looks on us as a people who are interdependent upon one another. We get strength from Christ to live our daily lives. But that strength flows from Christ our head into us, through us, into each other's lives. And because of this unity that is really there, brethren, you have something to work on. You have something to abase your efforts on because of this real unity of the name of Christ and the unity of the body of Christ. You and I can be deeply united in love for one another and in the truth that we all believe. I want you to notice how extensive this unity is in verse 10. It is not some little simple things, brothers and sisters. Notice all the verbs and adjectives. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. That there be a sameness, a oneness in the confession of our faith and in our hope. That some of us over here don't go off in this direction speaking one thing and someone else goes off in another direction speaking something else. There is to be a unity, a oneness, a sameness so that wherever we are, if someone hears John Doe give testimony to the truth here or Susan Smith give testimony to the truth somewhere else, there is a sameness, there is a unity in what we speak. And not in just what we speak, but in verse 10, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together or complete. And boy, is that ever a complicated and strong word in the Greek language. It means to be perfectly woven together. It means to complete each other's lives. That we be so one in loving each other, so interdependent upon each other, so committed to the same truth and learning the same truth and speaking the same truth that we are woven inseparably inseparably together and made complete. We couldn't even conceive of living without one of the other people in this church. So that when one cries, we all cry. And when one is filled with joy, we are all filled with joy. Then verse 10 goes on to say that we should be complete in the same mind and in the same judgment or opinion. That is how extensive this unity is. Bearing in mind, there is variety in the Christian church. Nevertheless... The unity we are called to as Christians is a unity that means we have the same mind and the same opinion. And I'm not telling you this myself, beloved. This is from the infallible Word of God. The same mind I would emphatically interpret as the same worldview, the same basic assumptions we make about life, the same way of thinking, the same way of evaluating... The Bible must be the source and the regulating principle of the way we think. And that is the only way we are ever going to have the same mind. But we are also to have the same opinion. We are to have the same opinion on how the Bible is to be applied in the modern world. We are to be so one in loving each other and one in truth that we make the same judgments and assessments and the same evaluations. That is how extensive this unity is. Then in the next few verses, Paul points out how absurd it is to be disunited. How absurd divisions and cliquish spirits are in the church. He says this thing of following One man is foolish. He says in verse 13, Has Christ been divided? Is Christ divided up like this church is? You like me more than Peter and Apollos, but did I die for you? Those who put me, says Paul, on a pedestal over Cephas and Apollos, Have you been baptized in my name? You see, he points out the absurdity of the divisions and the rivalries and the competition in the church as he calls these people to a deep, sincere, extensive, observable unity in Christ. Now, what was it that was dividing them? What was causing all the confusion and quarreling in the church at Corinth? Look at verse 12. First, in verse 11, we learn that the house of Chloe informed Paul. Of what was going on. And he says in verse 12. You are all quarreling. same I am of Paul and I of Apollos. And I of Cephas and I of Christ. So you had an exaggerated preference. For certain preachers that are at the church of Corinth. Now on the surface there is nothing wrong with preferring one preacher over another. As long as it doesn't become exaggerated and unhealthy because it has the potential of becoming a slavish following of one man and an abandoning of the Word of God. And that's how cults originate. People slavishly follow one person and so identify with what they teach as being the very revelation of God that they disassociate themselves from everyone else, refuse to appreciate the value of anyone else, and then ultimately abandon the Word of God. Think about what has happened with several of such movements. Take our landlords here, for example, the seven-day Adventist. They have the Bible, and they have the writings of Mary White. Eventually, the writings of White were believed over the Word of God. Especially their truncated view of justification by grace through faith. In Mormonism, they have the Bible, but they also have the writings of Joseph Smith. And eventually, Joseph Smith's writings have been set over the Word of God, and they have doctrine after doctrine, including polytheism, that are alien to the Word of God. They have abandoned God's infallible Word. That's where this exaggerated preference for certain preachers lead, unless we put the Word of God over every man, and we follow the Bible, no matter what anyone else says. Well, Now the question must be, why was there this preference for certain preachers? We all prefer one teacher over another. So why was this situation such a big deal? Why was this such a serious crisis that Paul had to address it in this epistle? Because of an underlying issue, which was a disagreement and confusion about the nature of wisdom. Now remember, back when I first started the book of 1 Corinthians just a few weeks ago, I said one of the problems they faced was pressure from their culture. And one of the pressures from their culture was Hellenism. Hellenism was a form of Greek philosophy that was concerned with wisdom, what wisdom meant, how you knew you had it, and what effect it had on your life. Then we saw in our introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians that another problem in the church of Corinth was that they were also confused about the word spiritual. They didn't have a handle on what the word spiritual meant, which was caused by the influence of this Greek philosophy on their thinking. So when they came into the Christian church, they weren't able to distinguish pagan philosophy from the word of God, of course, causing a great deal of confusion. And because there were similar words in both Christianity and pagan philosophy, they would take Christian words and many times define them in terms of that pagan philosophy. So there was a lot of confusion at the church in Corinth. And the pinnacle of Greek philosophy was the quest for wisdom. So what did Hellenism teach about wisdom? Now, trust me, you're going to see how practical all this is in just a few minutes. Greek thought said that wisdom is something that is highly intellectual, ethereal, And beyond the grasp of most men. Unless, of course, you are one of the spiritual ones. One of the blessed wise. And when a person acquires this wisdom, they thought, it is manifested in rhetorical and oratorical prowess. They said, if you are wise, then you will be able to stimulate and overwhelm people intellectually by your ability to speak with power. And that led to the disagreement over the preachers. Some were able to touch the feelings of the listeners and motivate them. Apollos, it is said, had great oratorical ability, superior to most men. But some people still preferred Cephas, and others wanted Paul, while others said, Christ is all I want. But notice Paul disassociates himself from this. He says, I'm not taking my content, nor the form by which I communicate it, from any philosophy. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. He totally disassociates himself from human wisdom. In this case, of course, Greek philosophy. He says this in verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words or cleverness of speech. In other words, not according to the Greek rhetorical tradition. In chapter 2, 4, "...and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and, and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." He he says, I am making a deliberate effort not to identify with or take any of my strategy from this Greek philosophy. Because the way by which you determine whether or not a man is wise is not by his ability to speak and overwhelm people by his fanciful oratory. It comes through the Spirit of God. Now, do you know what this thought concerning wisdom did to these people? They thought that wisdom was highly intellectual, ethereal, of the spirit, beyond the grasp of most men, which manifested itself in great speaking abilities that would would stimulate and impress people. Now, what would that do to a person that has this kind of wisdom? Well, it made them cocky. And arrogant. Look who I am. Look at what I've done. I've acquired all this knowledge. Ain't I something special? But several times throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with this subject of boasting and arrogance. For example, chapter 8, verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. But charity edifieth. In other words, if you have knowledge and wisdom without love, it will just make you arrogant. Actually, knowledge without love is a form of of ignorance because it leads to vanity and conceit. Knowledge without the grace of God leads to death and is thus foolishness. All of those who hate God love death, says God's word. Of course, knowledge is essential for man, but is insufficient without Christ's saving grace. Chapter 1, verse 31. That according as it is written, He that glorieth or boasteth, let him glory or boast in the Lord. If you are going to boast about anything, boast about God, Paul says, not about yourselves. So you see, this Greek humanism that Paul calls the wisdom of this world was confusing for new converts because they were not well grounded in what the Bible teaches. And they weren't able to detach themselves yet from the influences of humanism. This caused division or schism in the church. There was rivalry. There was competition which led to intense arrogance and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. That led to much boasting and bragging on the part of the congregation, and thus disunity. Worldly wisdom, humanism, brothers and sisters, always leads to disunity. Now... Let us think for a little while about what this wisdom of the world looked like. This human wisdom that took such pride in intellectualism. You'll find that the human wisdom Paul had to deal with that was causing so much strife in the early church was not any different than the humanism that we have to deal with in the church and our culture today. For instance... Ancient Greek philosophy assumed the ultimacy of the human mind, that a person can acquire or obtain knowledge simply by reason, experience, or intuition, but certainly not by divine revelation. That was the foundation pillar of what ancient Greek humanism really thought. You can acquire knowledge, you can understand yourself, You can understand life in general. You can get a good handle on life and a good education on what life is all about. And all of this understanding is acquired either by your own reason or your own experience or just your own intuition. But you can learn nothing from the revelation of Almighty God. Now it's important that we understand this for two reasons. Number one... We have children. And we live in a culture in which our children are bombarded with this Greek philosophy of wisdom every day. This is what the television is teaching your children. Now, I'm I'm sure you're not teaching this philosophy at home. But our children do get glimpses of this if they have contact with the outside world, and we cannot protect them forever. They are led to believe this from the movies, from cartoons, even commercials. And for those of you listening to this on our radio program, and you have children in public schools, this is the only indoctrination they are getting. So why would your children ever need God? And those of you who are sending your children off to Christian colleges, beware. Because a recent survey has shown that just as many believing young people sent off to Christian colleges apostatize as those sent off to four years of secular universities. You parents must understand this and constantly, day in and day out, bombard your children with the revelation of Jesus Christ.
1: The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon and again Wednesday evenings at 715. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866-5607. We thank you for joining us, and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.